warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Hi, Scott here with me is Stephen. Good morning. Morning, mate. How are you doing? Uh, recovering. Um, just spoke to you off air. I don't know if we discussed this last week when we were talking about Dunkirk. About about your wind. About my wind. About the after effects of Storm Dennis. Um, we certainly did discuss it together, but I don't know if it was captured on microphone. But we were laughing, Tony and I, that... The after effects of Storm Dennis is, was not as serious down here as it is in your neck of the woods. You know, the serious flooding and the damage and things that have gone on up in Yorkshire. Yeah. And we were joking that the carnage, you know, the extent of the carnage was a wheelie bin that had been blown over. And I've got to tell the listeners this, that unbeknownst to me, that's a great word to use, unbeknownst. Unbeknownst. Unbeknownst yeah. to me. While we were laughing and joking about you know, patio tables being blown over and the odd bit of rubbish being taken up in a gust of wind. My 40-foot cherry tree had snapped in half and was laying across next door's garden fence. <laughs> and I didn't notice for about three days. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there was some literal carnage um, out in my back garden. And, yes, all, all down to the wind, sir. Yes. So a relatively quiet week for yourself. It's eased up a wee bit, although it's been a bit blowy here today. So, as I, as I've said before, the flooding in York is just kind of standard. We we do say York is twinned with Atlantis. So, <laughs> when so I we just up, get on with it, you know. Yeah, when I came up to visit you just before Christmas, we went to the the Viking Museum in the city centre, and I didn't realise it, it completely flooded a couple of Boxing Days ago, didn't it? A few years back, it was. Um, that was when I was trapped in my flat. Um, <laughs> I couldn't get out for three days because all of the roads around where I was were flooded. I was fine where I was and still had full internet connection and everything. I just couldn't get out because <laughs> wow. um, and I couldn't. I, you know, I was phoning to work and say, "Sorry, I'm not coming in." Oh, why is that then? Are you ill? Uh, no, I'm just flooded in. <laughs> yeah, I haven't got a so, boat. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was. Yes, I, I felt like a, a king in his castle with a moat um, around me. Wow. But, um, so, yes, we just deal with these things. That's okay, it, yeah. yeah. It's not, you know, we don't, don't have the same attitude that you know, tree blows over and it's panic stations like... <laughs> Southern softies, go on, say it. Go yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> You're made of stronger stuff, sir. Stronger yeah. stuff. We have to be. Yeah. Uh, so, that's that's the weather podcast. Let's that go. is the weather podcast, yeah. But speaking of London... So, yeah, as we were, talking of things, we're, we're hitting the spy genre. But it's not Bond, it's... It's an alternative to Bond, and it's a it's a working class mod Bond, really. <laughs> and, and well, I love this movie. You selected it for us, and I'm so glad that you did. 
If you haven't guessed already, it's the Ipcrest Vault from 1965. We'll be back after this. concerns you. Yes, you. And you. You will forget all about the Ipcress file. You have forgotten your name. In truth, his name is Michael Kane, and no one will forget his name. Michael Kane. He walks straight into sensational stardom in the Ipcrest file as he gets right under the skin of the brash, cocky, wry-humoured Harry Palmer. The soldier seconded from the army for security duties, who's never far away from a girl, and always closer than close to trouble. Now get this. I'm going to tell you until I know you're clean. And if you're not clean, I'm going to kill you. Both these men cover the British security network, but each keeps his own counsel and his own secrets. The one on the left is Dolby of the Home Office, a passed over major, but nothing passes him by now. A word in your shell-like ear. If there's anything to be reported to Ross, I report it. Understand? Yes, sir. This is Colonel Ross of the War Office. I want you to do a job for me. Any choice? Frankly, no. She's Jean Courtney, one of the agents Harry works alongside. But whose side is she on? You're working for Ross. He sent you here. Don't be silly. I'm working for Dolby. Between the kisses and the double crosses, they are all working for somebody whilst you get the closest workover of them all as you actively share the stark, dangerous secrets of the Ipcress file. Move over for today's most sensational hypnotic meeting with suspense. The Ipcrest File, released in the UK on the 18th of March 1965, directed by Sidney J. Fury, based on the novel by Len Dayton, starring Michael Caine, Nigel Green, Guy Dolman, Sue Lloyd and Gordon Jackson, plus a certain other gentleman who we will mention when we get to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yes. Stephen, it's over to you, sir, for the synopsis. In London, a counter-espionage agent deals with his own bureaucracy while investigating the kidnapping and brainwashing of British scientists. Okay. Your choice today, as we said. And when we mentioned last week that you'd selected it, we said it's surprising because most listeners are aware of my love and admiration for Sir Michael. This is his fourth or fifth appearance now, isn't it, I believe? 
He's certainly racked up a number of appearances, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but every single one has been selected by either yourself, Tony, yeah. or the audience. I've not actually selected a Michael Caine movie as yet. Before we go into the video, I'll just give you my history and then we'll talk about your history of the movie because yeah. I, I know you've seen it a few times and I certainly have. Probably seen it, I reckon, about six or seven times and I've always enjoyed it. But it wasn't until my last viewing, probably a couple of years ago, that I truly appreciated what a fine piece of cinema it actually is. I just watched it because it was a Michael Caine movie. I just watched it because it was a spy thriller. But it wasn't until the previous viewing that I really took the cinematography and the music and the whole package into consideration. What I've been doing, I've been putting off watching it, as I say, for about two years or so, waiting for the opportunity to discuss it, either on the Stinking Paws podcast or, of course, with you on Real Britannia. So, thankfully, that opportunity has now arrived. How familiar are you with the Ipcrest file, mate? Well, it's almost identical for me. Mm. Early interest in Michael Caine films, um, sort of sparked off by the Italian job, and then just watching just... And anything Michael Caine just for a while, and this, as you, you know, put it yourself, it was film that you watched for that reason, but didn't appreciate properly until you watched it with a more critical hmm. um, eye of somebody, you know, as a reviewer almost, and that's when you see the quality that's in it, and that it's not just a, a knockoff spy filler, oh, it's not no. just a, a one that's been done to make a working-class um, mod version of, of James Bond sort of thing. It, there's more to it. There's a, some amazing technical work within the actual um, cinematography um, and the shots that are done in it. There's also you know, a bit more complexity in the, the plot than you would ordinarily imagine. Um, and it, and oh, there's, there's a snapshot of, of London as well in the 60s it's quite interesting as you, you probably appreciate more than many people I hadn't watched it for a number of years until last year when I watched it again it had been on my list right from the start to put, mm. do on this podcast in fact it might have even been the first thing on my list <laughs> but that or Excalibur I can't remember which yeah. but the fact was I, I went back to it just thinking well just check it's not just me having a fond memory for it it actually does have some some worth to it and, and then had the same experience that you did watching it and going, actually, this is not a bad quite, movie, quite, is it? <laughs> quite, quite, quite astounding, really. In in many ways, it was there was a lot of quite modern methods used in it and interesting use of sound and and such and symbolism in it as well, uh, which we can get into. And that oh, yeah. that all sort of added together and just made me realise that yeah, this isn't as appreciated as it should be. Um, and you know we can obviously change that. Let's give it some idea of where this sits, sort of chronologically, with say regard to Michael Caine. It's after Zulu and before Alfie. Len Dayton's first spy novel, not his first novel, but his first spy novel, and then obviously things snowballed from then on. With regard to James Bond, because I think we'll probably be discussing the importance of, of Bond and the legacy and the influences, or even this is the anti-Bond movie, you know, we could probably talk about that. It's 1965, so we've had, what we had, Doctor No in 62, Russia We Love 63, Goldfinger in 64, and then this came out in March, so December this year, 65, you get Thunderbolt. So 
Bond mania is at its peak here, 1965. Prior to this, the director, who is Sidney J. Fury, all he was notable for was a couple of Cliff Richard movies. He did The Young Ones in 61, Wonderful Life in 64. But for those following our series on, you know, the influences of the kitchen sink dramas that we've been discussing, Sidney J. Fury directed The Boys in 1962 and The Leather Boys in 64. So he's got a little bit of history with the social problem stuff, the team movie genre as well. But and he went on to do <laughs> such fantastic cool. films as, as Iron Eagle and Superman 4. Superman 4, <laughs> yet possibly the worst comic book movie ever made. But he also did um, The Entity, Lady Sings the Blues, Diana Ross, the Billy Holiday yeah. thing. He was uncredited director on The Jazz Singer, the Neil Diamond one. Oh, right. He was fired um, and replaced by Richard Fleischer. But he'd shot about something like 48 hours of what was described as often unusable footage. But some of it was kept in the final movie, so he's uncredited director along with Richard Fleischer on the jazz movie, uh, the jazz movie, on the jazz singer. So safe to say that Sidney J. Fury had a checkered career, um, and the Ipcrest file is probably the high point for him. Yes, it's fair to say that Mm. this, you know, is something he should be remembered for rather than some of the other stuff. While we're talking then, Sidney J. Fury, let's talk cinematography because that, apart from this being Swinging London and Michael Caine again just on the ascendance here before Alfie just explodes, I'm saying Swinging London, you get no sort of recognition that it is the pop cultural capital of the world at this point. Looking at some of the scenes and the, and the locations used, it's very drab. London, isn't it? It's dirty London. The the only sort of hint of any modernity in here, because there's no gadgets or anything like that, or flash cars, is the supermarket. Well, yeah, the only you know the only gadgets are his um, coffee grinder yeah. and his and his, <laughs> his flat, and I think the the alarm clock. I think he has a, a some kind of, you know, more modern alarm clock That's than it, yeah. normal clock and, and bell. But yeah, the supermarket been the the new thing. Mm. But apart from that, I think the angle they were coming from, they, they weren't wanting to, it to be seen as being targeted at, at youth in directly, and it was actually taken on board youth culture. But they wanted to make it more modern and less, you know, less about people swanning around in you know in yachts and. Um, and things that, uh, in in the Caribbean, which you know is is, is Bond. Yeah. You know, Dayton uh, as one of the the top spy authors of this this country has ever mm. produced. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, along with the um, carrier as, as well, um, backing up. I think the the factor of this is that it wasn't it wasn't trying to pull on that culture. It was about the culture of the you know the civil service and. Um, and such, rather than it being um, about the youth culture, that's why Hip, Harry Palmer, the, the lead character, is you know he is more interested in Mozart classical music <laughs> than he is in in the Beatles. Yes, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that kind of makes it modern, but not mod in a way. I know what you mean. Um, yeah. yeah, the cinematography, as you were saying about the the the, the way that they do shoot shoot what they have got. I mean, there's 
um, the same cinematographer that actually did Alfie and some of some of the other um, films, to be perfectly honest. There are certain shots where you know he's having he's having a fight with a, a henchman on some steps, and you're seeing that through the window of a, a, a telephone call box. Yeah. And rather than seeing it in you know in detail close up, it's in it is a background shot of it happening. We get and a there's lot a lot of lots mm. of bits like that mm. where it's it's that perspective shot. That, that is being used, which is is quite a, a trademark, I think, of Fury. But it's um, it definitely gives this a, a different feel and a different look to it. It's it's Otto Heller is the cinematographer. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and there are a lot of shots, as you say, where the action takes place in the background, and it's filmed through keyholes or windows, as you say. Or there's one point I think in the library where. The baddie is his face is obscured by a lampshade, and then he moves to the left, and his face appears. And there's a lot of um, distorted lenses and un- very unusual angles. Basically, I think I read somewhere I've sent you over this marvelous infographic. Yeah, uh, that's that's got all this trivia to do with the Ipcrest file. I think what I might do is pop that on the Facebook page for people to have a look at if they're interested. Oh, it'd be worth worth looking at, yeah. Apparently, Heller and Fury took their cue from Palmer's poor eyesight. The camera's often out of focus, or it shoots through the objects. There you go. There's a pair of symbols, lampshades, a parking meter. That was the other one. And it creates, according to the BFI here, a visually abstract world that contrasts with the otherwise gritty and realistic look of the film, which it is because it can be a bit unsettling that you're watching somebody talk and the, and the camera angle is like really skewed. And yeah. you feel like you're sort of eavesdropping. You're hiding behind that whatever object it is and you're just listening to somebody else's conversation. It makes it more realistic than a Bond movie. It's certainly not as romantic as a Bond movie. It is an antidote to that spy genre that, again, Bond mania is at its peak at this point and then you're going to get all those other American sort of influences like the in like Flint with James Coburn and Dean Martin did the Matt Helm movies. You know, there's a lot of spy movies coming about at the time. Yeah, although this did influence apparently um the Mission Impossible um Oh the T V series was was, was influenced this was seen by the creator of that who wanted to go for a similar feel mm. to this. But yeah, the, the the different perspective, not just in the camera views but in the just in the angle that you you know you've got the the two two principals negotiating the the release of this scientist and they're sat on a park bench and there's there's Michael Caine's character sat to the side of them looking incredibly bored um <laughs> you know rather than being sort of you know if it had been Bond he would have been either there doing the negotiations himself yeah. or he would have been on point right ready to fight off some henchman or something other. Michael Caine's character just that that insolence and also that sort of lack of desire to just do the boring stuff. It's just you know it's just that's you know it's like when he you know gets the paperwork and he just like drops it in a drawer and closes it and walks up. That's it. Yeah, bureaucracy and all that lot. Yeah. Well, we got some idea that he's a rebel anyway because he mentions that he was brought up on charges, wasn't he? For what was it? Some black market dealing. He was oh, doing black market dealing. Basically, yeah. he made a load of money out of the the German army, um, and they insisted that um, something was done about him because he'd taken them for such a, a large amount of money. Yeah, that's the, the other side of him. I mean, you know, he's there, stood. They're talking about his reassignment, and rather than um, taking it on board as far as 
what his his role is going to be and and what you know how he's going to be protecting the country or anything like this. He's just concerned about whether there's a pay rise, um, <laughs> exactly, yeah. and and then that angle of it. But um, absolutely, with the 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 idea of the the vision of Michael Caine's character with the glasses on and off, and the fact that purposefully it was done that he was he was wearing glasses throughout the entire film except in bed and now that's a um, very famous line actually isn't yeah and <laughs> um, i'm sure you've used it yourself many times all the but, time <laughs> yeah that sort of playing in because it's actually used at one point in the um auditorium when he's got his glasses off because he's cleaning them and he's looking around and not seeing things properly and then you know sort of concentrating again to, to see what's what's going on in the middle of the auditorium. It's used to effect, and I think it's incredibly useful to have that as somebody who's not a perfect specimen like Bond seems to be. There's somebody who's, who's you know, living with the... It's not necessarily he's living with a disability as such, because, you know, eyesight isn't like that, but it's showing that he's just an everyday man, really. That's right. Um, when, and when... that is incredibly important for this, this film, I think. Yeah, before that, when did we have a leading man that wore glasses, you know, very, very rare up to this point. Yeah. You know. You're talking about Bond again. It's, it's difficult not to compare this to Bond, but when you look at the rest of the the crew and the backstage people, this is Broccoli and Saltzman. Well, it's Harry Saltzman, isn't it? Again, it's it's, it's the Bond producer and, and, oh, John, yeah. and John Barry doing the music, who so far has done every single Bond Bond. Um, Every single yeah, he'd, done the, he'd arranged every every one of them. Yeah, um, based upon Monty Norman's initial um, tune that he'd done um, for for an, an Indian musical about That's an Indian man right. who had a uh, what was it? He had a, a, a explosive sneeze or something over, that and that's it. what it, that was. It was played on like a sitar, yeah. and it was then rearranged as the Bond theme. But um, yeah, go, go back to episode and, number eight. I think yeah. because I tell the whole story of how the Bond theme came came That's about it. in the Doctor No documentary. Yeah, and John Barry being a, a York boy, um, I was going to say, yeah, a bit of a local hero for you. Yeah, um, yeah, I know his niece. I so. didn't know. I found out that he was. I didn't realise he was married to Jane Birkin not long after this for a few years. Uh, yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, yeah. Read, I was reading about it. Yeah, I didn't realise that. But yeah, yeah. The, what what sets this one apart? I mean, it does sound... I was listening specifically to it, knowing it was John Barry when I was watching this Friday night. And I'm thinking, do you know what? This sounds very, very similar to a lot of the stuff in Thunderball, which comes out this year as well, later in the year. And it turns out it's that one particular instrument. Is it the cymbalom? I think it's called. Which yes. Is the, yeah. It's a stringed instrument, but you you hit it with like um like hammers, isn't it? It's rather than pluck it or play it with a bow, it's it's sort of struck with like a xylophone type thing. And it's got that certain. You certainly know it's a John Barry soundtrack, but it's also a John Barry soundtrack with a little bit of a twist. Again, it's what makes it. You've got the visual differences of. Um, Sorry, you've got the visual aspect of all these bizarre camera angles and, and out-of-focus shots and stuff like that. And then when you marry it up with this quite unique sound of the soundtrack that John Barry has come up with here, I think that's what sets this apart. I think this is why it is... I don't think this is an undersea movie. I don't think this is, you know, we said before, criminally under overlooked, but... I think this is what sets it apart. I think this is why Michael Caine became a star, because this particular movie, as well as his acting, which is brilliant, this particular movie is quite 
quite different from the time. Oh, absolutely. Stylistically, it stands out, although there's the elements in there that are sort of um, familiar and same people involved and stuff. Um, definitely, it does. it's doing something different, and it was bound to stand out in some sense um, for extra attention and, and to catapult a few people into other, you know, the careers sort of thing, but particularly Michael Caine, obviously, yeah. with um, him only really doing Zulu before this of any note. This was the start, of, you know, it was also potentially a start of a series of films, which it did kind of get into, but not in the same way as James Bond um, oh, yeah. went, went to so many films. But there was a there was a run of a couple of films who which you know, weren't maybe as successful. But Diminishing still. returns, mate, I think, you know, I mean, yeah. it becomes a bit more cheesy and a bit more lighthearted by the time you get to Billion Dollar Brain, which is the third one as a victim of the time. You know, we're talking a couple of years later. And by this point, Bond has become a little bit more tongue-in-cheek as well. So it's just following the pattern of of what's being reflected on the screen. Uh, interesting you saying about Zulu. There's two other stars of Zulu in this movie as well. Nigel Green, Major Dolby, who plays Colour Sergeant Bourne, I think it is in Zulu, is here. And Glyn Edwards, who's the police station sergeant. Is yes, Glyn Edwards, yeah. yeah. No, there's Dave from Minder. Dave from Minder, yeah. yeah. <laughs> With a bit of hair in this one as well. While we're talking cast. Yes. As curator of the Village Hall of Fame, I, I can see a couple of names that I think may get second appearances. Have we got any new inductees this week? Well, we've got um, six third appearances, two fourth appearances, <laughs> one fifth appearance, two sixth appearances, and one eighth. That's the one I was hinting at. at the yeah. Beginning. So, um, as far as the third appearances... Yeah, so these are new inductees, yeah? Okay. These are the new inductees. We've got Peter Evans... Yep. who was previously in Dr. No, Heavens Above, and then he's in, in this. Max Faulkner, uh, Night to Remember, Bedazzled, and then this. Wow. Okay. Uh, Philip Ray, mm-hmm. who was in Troubling Star, Night to Remember, and then this. Richard Neller, yeah. who was in Doctor in the House, and Night to Remember. I was going to say, is it the <laughs> Night yeah. to Remember again? Um, George Spence, who was in Pool of London and Lavender Hill Mob, previous oh, to this. Okay. And a more recognisable name for most people, uh, Gordon Jackson yes. finally makes it in with Miss Jean Brodie previously in Hell Drivers. They're the ones that are new inductees, the um, repeat offenders, as yep. it were. <laughs> um, we have um, Ernie Rice, who was previously in Lavender Hill Mob, Night to Remember, Heavens Above. Uh, Pat Judge, who was in Heavens Above, Theatre of Blood and Doctor No. Yeah. And then the, the fifth appearance... Um, we have George Holcroft, who was in 10 Rillington Place, Carry On Nurse, in which we serve, Tribbling Star, and then this. And then we've got the two sixth appearance uh, people, <laughs> yeah. uh, Jack Sharp, yeah. who is in Violent Playground, Night to Remember, Heavens Above, 10 Rillington Place, Man for All Seasons, uh, Maurice Micklewhite, sorry, Michael Caine, oh, uh, <laughs> who is a sixth appearance now. Six now, excellent. Uh, Eagle has landed, Little Voice, Educating Rita, a man who would be king and sleuth. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, again the guy you were inferring earlier yeah. about. Um, the well-known name of Victor Harrington. <laughs> eight appearance. Don't eight rattle appearance. the eight off, mate, because yeah. th- you'll be there all day. Yeah, so he's been in eight things and nobody notices. 
um, because he's just one of those sort of background supporting characters. He is. He's always, yeah. we said before, didn't we, last week, he's always man at bar or yeah. spectator or something like that. So, um, so yes, quite a, as I said, quite yeah. a, a few uh, new inductees there. Particularly yeah. um, nice to have Gordon Jackson in there, considering um, we, we know his face on a number of things. Oh, um, yeah. and especially since he dies in this Oops, spoiler. Oops, yeah, spoiler. Yeah, for a 50-year-old movie, not to worry too much. Most of those names, unrecognisable to most yeah. of us. The Village Hall of Fame is getting out of control. It's bursting at the seams. It the is. Moment. It's now at 139 um, inductees. <laughs> we, when we started this, we, we had no idea. We just thought, oh, there'd be a couple of dozen three years down the line, which is where we are nearly now. Certainly didn't think it would go over 100. And and, wow. and I thought that those couple of dozen would be famous faces, recognisable names. Let's keep it going. We we can't stop the village. Hall no, no, it's, 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 it's too fascinating, late now. isn't it, as well, yeah. I think. It's too late now, and, and, and I've made the spreadsheet now, so we should be able to uh, keep on top of it. Update but, as we go. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah it's, it's amazing, like we've always said, that it's it's not the familiar Alec Guinnesses and, and such that you're expecting to see in there. It, yeah. is, it is these people, you know. The, uh, the the lesser known names who just happen to have been in everything. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's proving to be the case week in week out. Let's talk Michael Caine briefly, seeing as his sixth appearance now on the show. Yeah. Is there any indication in this movie that he would become the star? That he eventually be well, very soon becomes after this. I mean, Alfie is the one that really catapults him internationally. But I I like to think that this. You know, he's, he's sown the seeds after Zulu quite quite well, you know, for him to become the force that he does become over the next 20 years. I think if if you watch his performance carefully, you can see that, you know, he, he's able to do the, the dramatic bits. He's able to do the action parts. But there's also a hint in there about him having, like, comic timing as well. Which, because this film does have a, a smattering of, of funny lines in it, um, despite it being quite a, a straight-laced storyline, his character just making jokes to get him through his day, which mm. is you know what we all do. Um, and so I think that you can see in his performance that there's um, the elements there that are, that, if given the opportunity, can make him a star. And thankfully, he was given the opportunity. He is the ordinary man, even though he's ex-military and, you know, he's got this job as a spy, basically. He's still, as I say, he looks ordinary. He's got the glasses and we've never had a, a hero of a movie prior to this that I can think of particularly. And there's also these little nuances, like you hinted at earlier, with things like he's a connoisseur of, of fine food and he's got the state-of-the-art coffee grinders and listens to Mozart and the only reason he wants a pay rise is so that he can afford an infrared grill and there's this marvellous conversation in the supermarket about the differences between butter and mushrooms which we sort of spoke about earlier as well yeah. he's, a, he's a worldly wise man yeah, but, he's not just paying the couple of pence extra for butter mushrooms under a fancy name, <laughs> champion. Or yeah, they his, do his, actually taste better. It, he it, says, yeah, 
but also he's, he's, he's worldly wise in a way that is different to other heroes that we've seen before. You know, he's, he's got this refinement, but he could also knock you out with one punch and, and, and stand his corner if he had to. So, again, it's a unique character in this unique, uniquely shot movie with this marvellous, different type of soundtrack. It's all the elements, like I say, when you piece it together, you if you watch this movie casually, as we have done two or three times previously, you, you, you just don't appreciate that side of it. No, and and I think that the look of landing upon Michael Caine to play the the character because he wasn't the first choice. I think he was out of the ones that I've seen mentioned as alternatives for cool. the role. I Go think through it. Have was, you got that was, list? He was, still, he was still the best best choice. I mean, you know, Christopher Plummer, yeah. I think would have done a decent enough job. Ian Bannon, we know. Can oh, act, so that yeah. it, would have, it would have been interesting to see him do it. Richard Harris as well would have been quite interesting but still not I don't think he would have done a Michael Caine with it necessarily although there was similarities in the working class character actor could have pulled off um, and Harry H. Corbett <laughs> Incredibly. Um, would have given an entirely different feel to the film I, I, I think although he hadn't quite um, gone too deep into being um, almost a caricature yeah. comic actor rather than a, a, just a comic actor at that point but People forget. still it would have given a different feel to it People forget he was a great Shakespearean actor before Steptoe. Mm. Um, if there was a, a BBC dramatisation, you know they do these things on BBC Four about how certain programmes started. They did one on Doctor Who, didn't they, on the 50th yeah. anniversary? They did one for Coronation Street. They did one on the on the sort of the generation the um, on the birth of Steptoe and Son with Galton and Simpson and casting and all that lot. And he was quite bitter about it for years. That he was he was a classical actor, and and ended up you know carry on movies and, and just comedy from then on in you know um, incredible. I think that might have worked. I, I like the idea of Harry H. Corbett as Harry Palmer. <laughs> um, it wouldn't have focused on it. It'd been a totally different look because I don't think the glasses would have been part of the yeah. you know the makeup and the uh, and the costume design. That was uniquely because it was Michael Caine had to wear them. Yeah, that would be interesting to have seen. Yeah, it would have been, but I suppose it, you know, in retrospect, it helped, especially any kids or teenagers of the of that of the sixties that you know that glasses weren't it made you um, uncool. Mm. It, it allowed people to be cool a bit more, and then obviously with the likes of John Lennon and stuff, starting to wear his glasses um, also helped change. The attitude towards people wearing glasses, oh, but mm. um, but yeah, I think that you know the, there could have been some good performances and interesting takes on the character by those other actors. But I think still Michael Caine was the best choice, and it was good that it ended up with him rather than rather than the others. I think so. Without going too much into the plot, I mean, a lot of people will have seen this movie anyway. But towards the end, the final act is is where it becomes the most like a James Bond movie, I think. And it's it's the final showdown where almost taken to an underground lair almost and held captive. Yeah. Um with that remarkable twist, which obviously <laughs> I won't I won't reveal it because there may be people out there that haven't seen it. Um but he's taken to Albania. Is it Albania? The way in which that plays out 
as we say, I mean, there's a, there's already symbolism elsewhere in the, in the film to give you hints about who is a traitor and who isn't. And um, it does leave you guessing right up until the end there, um, despite the hints that it's given you, because yeah. it's it's tried to mislead you in some points. In other ways, it's tried to actually give you the, the actual nod to let you, and, and the wink to let you know who is. Um, and that's the subtlety in this film, which I think could be uh, overlooked and certainly was by me on the initial viewings up until recently. Yeah. Won't give too much away. Won't give too much away, but there's this whole brainwashing sequence. And you spoke earlier, didn't you, about things like, not special effects, but sound effects. You know, there's quite some modern, for the time, use of synthesizers and stuff like that, which I'm wondering if John Barry was responsible for there as well, rather than, you know, whoever's... charge of the sound side of things and again it just makes it very modern very bondian and and quite hard hitting as well when you realize what's going on you know where he's he's using pain to take his mind off of things and um i like it i love that whole thing i love the way the whole it's, it's quite pedestrian the whole movie leading up to it. there's been one there's no car chases there's been one punch up on the steps of the albert hall as you said and then it goes into full-blown spy movie at the end there's a number of layers to this like a, an onion sort of thing mm. which i think is quite interesting to look at but even if you're not you know not wanting to watch a film in in that way you can still just as we have for a number of years just watched it and just enjoyed it it's difficult for me when i'm rating this not to give it five again well that's the thing when we spoke about i think it was dunkirk last week when I watch this movie, there's there's nothing I dislike about it. And if anything, on sort of every single viewing, the more I watch it, it just gets better because I I appreciate it more. I spot more in this. I I just love the whole package of this. It not just not because I'm biased because I like Michael Caine. I don't know. I think it's a classic. It's a true classic, not just. A well, it was recognised at the time, wasn't it, with Baftas and things? So it got, like, did it get a screenplay or awards? Or well, no, it's best picture, wasn't it? I think best best picture, and I think Michael Caine got um, best actor or go. nominated for it. So you, you know, he got notice. Um, so it's not just you bias. There is there is you know uh, objective um, evidence that this was you know was a good film. Yeah. Your rating system. I'll be interested to see how how you sort of judge this one. Although I think that uh, that there might be some benefit to seeing it on a, a big screen because of the sound element to it and, mm. and such. Um, ultimately, I think it's something that's easy to just put on the television and, and enjoy. So I would say people who uh, have any interest in spy films particularly should go out their way to see it because this actually informed and influenced a lot of some ones that even now in some of the TV series and you know even things like spooks and stuff like that, that you had from the BBC a number of years ago where you had you know the actual real lives of the people as well as their spy lives this is the start of that where it was showing the person as a rounded individual rather than just their their work life as a an agent so this is something that has a lot of lot of worth either as somebody who's a fan of film mm-hmm. who wants to go a bit deeper, um, or people who just want to have a, just a, a bit of entertainment, um, either way, this ticks the boxes. So I'd recommend people go out there where to actually um, find it and watch it. If you can see it on a big screen, 
this whole thing that we were talking about, the different angles and the out-of-focus shots, and certainly hit me more this time watching it on the projector. It is it is marvellous. If you get, I'm going to say, if you can find it on a big screen, please go and see it. It will just blow your mind at how... It's, it's a beautiful-looking film. Even though, as I said, some of the... Um, the settings are a bit drab and it's just grey London and it's not and it's not swinging London. Visually it's it's a it's a treat. It really is. Okay, mate, what we're gonna do, we'll take a short break and we'll be back with what we're watching next time. Okay, Stephen, next time, with Ipcrest File still fresh in our mind, I, I was thinking, right, you're going to have to back me up on this. <laughs> what that you were thinking? I was thinking that we've been talking about James Bond, Harry Saltzman, John Barry, all that sort of stuff for the last 40 minutes or so. And we've been broadcasting now for nearly three years, and we've only covered Dr. No. I think we ought to do the next in the James Bond set, mate. I think we ought to do From Russia with a Love. I don't see any reason why not, sir. Yeah, because I think it'd be interesting because watching a, watching it a week apart from the Ipcrest file, I think we may have a little bit more to say in comparison with the two movies. And I think we will probably recognise the influences that From Russia with Love has on the Ipcrest file. And we need to get a few of these under our belt because we've got 25 of them to do. <laughs> the new one will be coming out possibly by the time from Russia with Love episode goes out. So, you know, it might prove to be quite topical as well. Yeah, let's get some early Bond. And it's one of the better early Bonds. This is the one with Robert Shaw, isn't it? I love this one. Yes, yeah. it is, yeah. Um, Rosa Klebb. You know, it's, it's starting to build up some of the familiar elements that Dr. No sort of didn't sort of pick up on originally we're starting to get M and Money Penny and Q, I think Q's in it for Q's the first, first time is it Q's first appearance yeah or? there's yeah. in the first one there's but he's the armourer I think rather than the science officer or science officer that's Star Trek isn't it um, <laughs> the gadget <Shit>. man <laughs> yeah. so yeah from Russia with Love 1963 will be our next episode good stuff yeah Fantastic choice today, as always, mate. Thank you for making me watch the Ipcrest file. It wasn't a chore, that's for sure. No, but I'm glad after you're holding off for as long as you did that um, it was, you know, it was worthwhile the oh, wait. Yeah, yeah, probably my my best viewing of it so far. You can find our Facebook group. Please come along and chat with us over there. We'll put this infographic on there if we can as well. Some real fascinating stuff on the movie. We are on Twitter. Follow us there. And all our episodes, well, you know where to find them. You're listening to us now. Stephen, thank you so much for being here this morning, mate. I'll see you next week. Take care, man. Cheers, mate. Absolute shah. A positive shah. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you.
keeping the British hand up, sir.